Hey, this is Eric Benson, the host of Climify, a podcast that connects design educators with climate experts to help bring more climate safe projects into our design classrooms. Through my conversations with these climate leaders, I hope to help you Climify your syllabi and to create the next generation of climate designers. In fact, at the end of each program, my guest co-creates a design assignment for you to bring into your classroom for your students. This season, we are talking to women leading the way in climate action through the lens of each of the drawdown.org solution sectors. You can tune in to Climify anywhere you get your podcasts or directly at climatedesigners.org forward slash edu forward slash climify. And we'd love if you join in the conversation on Instagram or LinkedIn at Climify Podcast. This is Incomplete Design History, a podcast that explores overlooked and ignored topics in graphic design history. It is our goal to deepen and expand the knowledge, understanding, and interpretation of design history. Because history is messy. It's incomplete. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Mandy Horton. A word of warning before we begin, this subject will contain content that is not suitable for all audiences and contains strong language. You might want to preview this episode before sharing with anyone who might be offended by the language or content. So let's get to it. In the underground comic scene, sexist and violent images of women were plentiful. Complaints about the depictions of women were dismissed as censorship or attempts to stifle creativity and artistic freedom. But rather than accept the status quo, women artists started drawing and publishing their own titles that focused on their own experiences. Artists like Trina Robbins, Sharon Farmer, Lynn Shevely, and many others created spaces for women and queer artists to tell their stories on their own terms. Before underground comics, the only comics of any type for girls were titles like Archie and Katie Keene. A few magazines like Sweet Sixteen, Calling All Girls, and Polly Pigtails ran comics, but those were all out of publication by 1949. Romance comics were the next genre aimed at women with titles like Young Romance and My Date, the style of which would go on to inspire pop artists like Roy Lichtenstein. In 1963, Betty Friedan's groundbreaking book, The Feminine Mystique, was published. It was the same year that artists like Gilbert Shelton, Jack Jackson, and Frank Stack were producing the first underground comics. The feminist movement of the 1970s and the rejection of the Boys Club informed the direction of feminist comics. Most of the male underground comics artists seemed indifferent at best and threatened at worst when it came to women's rights. Comics filled with graphic violence directed at women were common, and anyone who criticized their sexism or misogyny were not welcome in the, quote, Boys Club. It was an alternative boys club, but still very much a boys club. Fueled by the feminist movement and their exclusion from underground comics, women sought to create their own comics. The 1970s saw an explosion of feminist comics such as Tooth and Nail, Ain't I a Woman, Off Our Backs, and Goodbye to All That. However, many lasted only a few issues. In 1970, It Ain't Me Babe, the first women's liberation newspaper in America was published in Berkeley. By the second issue, Trina Robbins, an icon of comics, was creating comics and covers for the publication. 
However, the paper listed no last names on the masthead, no editor, and no art director. It Ain't Me Babe published every three weeks by staff assembling the paper as a group. It lasted one very intense year and printed more than 20 issues. Trina Robbins drew the Every Woman comic with the character Belinda Berkeley. Robbins used the comic to showcase problems women faced in the 1970s, such as sexist advertising and street harassment. According to Robbins, Belinda is a very sweet young dodo, about 22, who lives in Berkeley and is supporting her old man and is working in an office, while he stays home and writes the great novel. She gets liberated and he gets uptight. That's what it's all about. The strip followed Belinda's journey to eventual liberation. Prior to her work with It Ain't Me Babe, Robbins was already one of the three most influential female comics artists, the other two being Willie Mendez and Lee Mars. Some see her as the female antithesis of R. Crumb. Robbins' style was traditional, uncluttered, glamorous, and at times resembled the style of Art Deco. Robbins said, it's total bullshit to say that girls don't read comics. Girls read comics when there are comics for girls to read. Most of the early comics Robbins read were about girls and women who worried about boys. But she liked Little Lulu, which was instead about getting around and frustrating the boys who tried to make her life difficult. Robbins was born in Brooklyn and had moved to L.A. before returning to New York in 1966 at age 28 to work for the East Village Other as an advisor and illustrator. The East Village Other was an underground newspaper in New York City that ran from 1965 to 1972. Similar to underground comics, underground newspapers in America had content that subverted the dominant or mainstream culture. EVO, as it was shortened to, was described by the New York Times as a New York newspaper so countercultural that it made the village voice look like the church circular. Robbins used the experience to make the character Susie Slum Goddess, that became the advertising spokesperson for her clothing designer business and boutique called Broccoli. She always felt that there was never any space left for her, and she was never included with the male comics artists. Her objections to images of mutilated women and sexual assaults might have kept her out of the circle as well. In 1969, when Roger Brand set up the first comic book convention panel for underground cartoonists, he did not invite her to take part. Except the host of the panel, Phil Suling, told Robbins that her strips were the only underground comics he liked, and he insisted that she attend. Willie Mendez experienced a similar attitude, noting that guys like Spain and Simon Deitch would be so nice when I was with Rick, his old lady, but were a bit rude when I was Willie the girl artist, so I didn't cultivate the comic scene too much. Somewhere around 1972, Robbins called on Ron Turner, founder of The Last Gasp, with the idea of women's comics, a women-centered comic book by women for women. Turner cut a check for $1,000 and rushed over. The first issue featured the first autobiographical comic ever published by Aileen Kaminsky, who married R. Crumb in 1987, as well as Robin's strip Sandy Comes Out, the first comic about being a lesbian, which Robin's wasn't. Robin's and the other women's comics artists joined together to support and publish each other's work due to the underground comic scene being a boys club that didn't accept women. In their second issue, Women's Comics stated that we have no desire to be an exclusive, divisive, or female chauvinist group. Robbins was bothered that Ron Turner of Last Gasp, who published Women's Comics, was a libertarian and would publish anything, including sexist works. So Women's Comics moved to other publishers until it ended in 1992. 
She said that she felt uncomfortable being sold alongside titles like Horny Biker Sluts. Women's Comics published 17 issues, the first in 1972 and the last in 1992, with a six-year hiatus during the Reagan administration, making it the longest-running and most successful women's underground comics title. Women's Comics featured the work of an impressive list of women artists. Linda Berry was born in 1956 in Richland Center, Wisconsin. In 1974, she attended Evergreen State in Olympia, Washington, where she met and befriended Matt Groening who became famous for The Simpsons and Futurama. Greenig was the editor of the college paper and pestered Barry into contributing comic strips. Her weekly syndicated comic was titled Ernie Pook's Comic, which she Xeroxed and sold in small collections at Printed Matter in New York City. At its peak, the strip was in over 60 papers. Barry's gift for syntax and conveying the way children actually speak gave Ernie Pook's Comic unparalleled psychological realism. It explored American childhood with emotion and strong powers of observation. She chronicled her often fraught and difficult relationship with her mother and grandmother, among other topics. To date, Barry has written 18 books and is one of the world's most famous literary cartoonists. Allison Bechdel was born in Beech Creek, Pennsylvania in 1960. She first attended Simon Rock College at age 16 and then went on to Oberlin. After graduation, she moved to New York City, working temp jobs while trying to get into graduate art programs. It was during this time that she found the first issue of Gay Comics and decided to combine her love with comics with her identity as a lesbian. Her first work in print was Dykes to Watch Out For, plate number 19. Twyla is appalled to learn that Irene is a morning person, a single panel showing a smiling nude woman jumping into bed while Irene is grimacing. It became a hugely popular syndicated strip about the everyday lives of mostly gay friends and couples and soon were being published in every issue of Women News. Women News, as you can probably imagine, was a radical feminist publication produced by the Women's News Collective in the 1970s and 80s. This newspaper published monthly and included content on various topics related to the women's liberation movement. It targeted all feminist women, gay and straight. The strip soon switched from a single panel to a multi-panel format and got national attention in the alternative press. Dykes to Watch Out For started in 1983 and ran for 26 years. In 2006, Bechdel published her graphic memoir, Fun Home, a family tragic comic. It is the story of a gay girl and her closeted and suicidal gay father. The book was turned into a Broadway musical and won a Tony for Best Musical in 2015. Julie Doucet was born on the very last day of 1965 in Saint-Lambert, Quebec. She studied plastic arts in Montreal and began contributing to Cheese Magazine, L'Orange, and Rectangle beginning in 1985. Doucet took women's autobiographical comics into uncharted territory with hilarious, melancholic, and disturbing looks into her everyday life. She covered topics like boredom of living alone, troubles with men and dating, thoughts on breast cancer, menstruation, criticisms of political correctness, obsessions, and cruel intimacies. In 1991, Doucet moved to New York City for a year and turned the experience into her book, My New York Diary. Willie Mendez's real name is Barbara. The nickname Willie came from her husband, Rick Kunstler, who was the guitarist for the band Group Image. It was a private joke about salsa musician Willie Bobo. Through her husband, Mendez met Kim Deitch, who almost immediately asked her to contribute her trippy, organic, and psychedelic comics to the Gothic Blimp Works. 
Mendez's work also appeared in It Ain't Me, Babe, and All Girl Thrills. Mary Fleeter was born in September of 1951. She was a writer and musician in addition to drawing comics. She attended Cal State Long Beach, majoring in printmaking. However, she maintains much of what she knows is self-taught. She quit art school to become a rock singer and artist. In 1988, she published her first work, Hoodoo, which adapted stories by Zora Neale Hurston. Fleener's comics rarely talked about women's issues or politics. Instead, they centered around existential hedonism. They featured stories about playing in rock bands, surfing, going to college, doing drugs, and having casual sex. Her pleasure-seeking lifestyle prompted R. Crumb's comment, The life that Mary Fleener's comics reflect down there is really frightening to me. If this is the future of the planet, oh man, how depressing. Fleener's style is rather cubist, blending together geometrical abstraction, cartoon exaggeration, and sharp, bold lines into what Scott McCloud, author of Understanding Comics, called non-iconic abstraction. Of her own work, Fleener said, Everyone said it was cubist and compared me to Picasso, but I don't really like modern art, and I really don't like Picasso. I attribute my style to the fact that I grew up in the 50s, and there was all of this atomic space-age design stuff everywhere. That's what influenced me, not modern art. Roberta Gregory grew up around comics. Her father, Bob Gregory, wrote Donald Duck comics for Walt Disney. Roberta was writing and drawing comics her whole life. By the time she became a student at CSU Long Beach, the women's movement was already going. In 1971, she sold her first story to women's comics. She experimented with many styles of comics in her college's humor paper before creating the feminist funny strip in 1974 and later Dynamite Damsels in 1976. Gregory said she was happy to be proof that feminists did have a sense of humor. Howard Cruz, editor of Gay Comics, contacted Gregory directly asking her to contribute. Cruz wanted to have women represented in gay comics and at the time, there just weren't many lesbian comics. Gregory is most well-known for Bitchy Bitch, the main character in her Naughty Bits comics. Starhead Comics published the first issue, but all issues after that were self-published. Bitchy Bitch was a short-tempered, foul-mouthed everywoman and was intended to be a throwaway character. She was based on the sort of person Gregory would find irritating, frustrated with her life, no skills, no self-awareness, and constantly blaming others. The last issue of Naughty Bits was published in 2004. Mary Wings was born Mary Geller in 1949. By age 19, she knew she was gay. At age 21, she learned the term lesbian and thought it sounded funny. When she discovered there was such a thing as lesbian communities, she wanted in. Her father, who treated her mother like a waitress, wanted her to give up her artistic dreams and raise a family. Wings' mother was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died 20 days later. Wings said her mother's frustration was my great inheritance. The minute she was out of the picture, all I wanted to do was the things she didn't do. She moved to San Francisco and published Come Out Comics, which she wrote and drew in a week. Wings didn't try to make the story universal, choosing instead to focus on her own experience of coming out, founding a community, and her first love. Coming Out Comics is considered the first lesbian comic book and is significant for its raw aesthetic, bluntness, and emotional generosity. Aline Kaminsky Crum was born in 1948 and by 1971 was married and had a degree in fine art from the University of Arizona. When her friend Ken Weaver of the band The Fugs introduced her to underground comics, she left her failing marriage and drove to San Francisco determined to publish her own comics. Her pioneering work made comics a place to discuss women's sexuality openly. 
Her first publication was in the first issue of Women's Comics and was an autobiographical story exploring themes of self-harm, the struggle to stop being a people pleaser, female sexuality, and the guilt around sexual attraction. It was raw, unfiltered, uncensored, and vulnerable depiction of women's sexual experiences. She met R. Crumb in 1972 and says she felt an instant connection. The next year, she moved onto the farm property at Pottery Valley as Crumb's girlfriend, who was at the time still married to and living with his wife, Dana. Kaminsky collaborated with Crumb for many years on a series titled Dirty Laundry, as well as on the pages of Crumb's anthology series, Weirdo. Crumb divorced Dana in 1977 and the two married in 1978. They had a daughter in 1981. She never saw Crumb's work as misogynist and defended it, which would be the cause of the long-running rift between her and Trina Robbins, who openly criticized the misogyny common in the comics by male artists. After several rejections by women's comics, Kaminsky Crumb and Diane Newman began publishing their title, Twisted Sister, in 1976. Kaminsky Crumb passed away in November of 2022 from pancreatic cancer. Lee Mars was born in 1945 and wanted to be a cartoonist since she was a small girl in Alabama. Through her later friendships with Trina Robbins and Howard Cruz, Mars decided she wanted to make her living publishing comics. Mars was one of the founding members of the Women's Comics Collective. Her best-known comics title was the three-part comic, The Further Fattening Adventures of Pudge, Blimp Girl. It is the story of Pudge, a 17-year-old overweight runaway who hitchhikes to San Francisco intent on losing her virginity. Mars was surprised to discover that a lot of preteen boys identified with Pudge and the sentiments of no one likes me and people are having fun without me and I'm not invited. Pudge's complete story was bound into a single volume in 2016 and nominated for an Eisner Award in 2017. Howard Cruz was born a preacher's son in 1944 in Birmingham, Alabama. He is the obvious outlier to this list, not only because he never published anything in women's comics, but also for being a he. As a preteen, Cruz knew he was gay. He parts ways with the rowdy and raunchy boys club of the comics in that he was a pioneer in LGBTQ plus comics and was known for his politically, narratively, and emotionally compelling comics that were provocative and moving. Cruz started publishing Barefoots in 1971. It is a surreal comic about a young man with overly large feet and seems to have offended some of the comics artists who considered their work to be more serious. Even though Hedrack, one of the supporting characters in Barefoots, came out in the second issue, Cruz himself wasn't ready to come out professionally. He said, I didn't want to raise the prominence on that basis. I wanted people to know my name before they knew I was gay. But that changed in 1979 when Dennis Kitchen approached Cruz about making a gay-themed comics anthology, which would become Gay Comics. Cruz agreed, but struggled with the fear of the world knowing he was gay and officially coming out. Soon there were many gay men and women cartoonists who contributed to the comic's 14 issues, which ran from 1980 to 1998. Cruz wanted stories about real-life experiences of gay people. It could be funny, sad, or serious, but it had to have some element of realism. The third issue had a trans-themed story from David Cotter, who himself was trans, and in issue four, Cruz drew a comic about the AIDS crisis. Cruz's crowning achievement was the publication of Stuck Rubber Baby in 1995. Often considered the next big thing after the publication of Mouse, Stuck Rubber Baby is an emotionally, sociologically, and politically complex coming-of-age story about homosexuality and the realities of racism in America. 
The book articulated the need for solidarity, documented the birth of the politics of the queer community and their relation to the civil rights movement and their interdependence of liberation struggles. The very nature of underground comics is their insistence on artistic freedom. And for these artists, the space to explore difficult topics was important. For that reason, they ran into the same kinds of legal trouble as R. Crumb's Zap Comics and Air Pirate Funnies. In 1976, Dennis Kitchen saw that women's comics were selling well and asked Trina Robbins to put together an anthology of women's comics. The result was Wet Satin, subtitled Women's Erotic Fantasies. Except the printer declared the book pornographic and refused to touch it. Robbins found it ironic that Kitchen Sink Press had printed Bizarre Sex, a book of all-male contributors, with a cover image that needed a plain white paper slipcover to avoid distribution trouble, but a book of all-female contributors was the problem. Evidently, the printer insisted that Bizarre Sex was satire while Wet Satin was serious. Wet Satin did get printed and got a glowing review from the underground newspaper Screw. The humor in wet satin is another welcome change from the undergrounds. What might be a tedious and boring book about the sexual psyche of liberated women turns out to be a series of clever, satirical, and entertaining cartoon strips. When it was time to print the second issue, it was the same argument about wet satin being pornographic. At that point, Robbins decided this was a battle not worth fighting. The second issue would also be its last. Joyce Farmer and Lynn Chevley were both single mothers, artists, and free clinic counselors who lived in Laguna Beach, California. In 1970, in an effort to explain the abortion procedure clearly and accurately, the pair produced Abortion Eve. It was a comic with four characters, all named Eve, who discussed the pros and cons of abortion versus giving birth through their own stories. From there, Farmer and Chevley formed their own publishing company, Nanny Goat Productions, and in 1972 published their anthology, Tits and Clits. It was the second comics anthology of all women artists. Simply put, it was all about sex and sexuality from a women's perspective, talking openly about vibrators, menstruation, and birth control. In 1973, an undercover police officer bought a copy of issue number one at the San Francisco bookstore Fahrenheit 451, arrested the shop owners for selling pornography, and went looking for Farmer and Chevley. The remaining 40,000 copies were hidden with friends, and for the next two years, Farmer and Chevley lived under the threat of imprisonment and fines up to $400,000. It wasn't until the district attorney decided not to take any further action that Farmer and Chevley could come out of hiding. The experience left scars. Farmer remarked that deep inside of me, fear still censors my brain before my fingers can pirouette. The next issue had a new title, Pandora's Box, and ran for seven issues. The mentality of anyone can create comics encouraged more and more artists to do just that. By 1972, Printmen alone had over 300 titles in print and market saturation wasn't far behind. Stricter drug paraphernalia laws and obscenity laws meant comics, artists, and merchandisers all rushed to cash out before it was too late. The Supreme Court ruling of Miller v. California wasn't about comics at all, but about a mail-order catalog for pornography films and books, and was sharpened via a New York State obscenity statute that said, a person who promotes obscene materials or possesses the same with the intent to promote it in the course of his business is presumed to do so with the knowledge of its content and character. Meaning that if others found the material obscene, the vendor could be retroactively fined and jailed unless they could prove that they did not know it was obscene. It also meant that local communities were free to decide their own First Amendment standards in regards to obscenity. 
Under stricter drug laws, head shops were prosecuted and shut down, and the ones that managed to survive didn't want any additional attention, pressure, or hassle of selling comics, too. The late wave of comics in the 1970s was not enough to sustain the underground comics movement at the same momentum that it had enjoyed previously. Even though the popularity of comics dropped off after the mid-70s, some comics artists tried to keep going. Only a couple were popular enough to avoid feeling the pinch. Arcade was Art Spiegelman and Bill Griffith's comics anthology that was meant to be a life raft for the best underground comics artists. Griffith and Spiegelman produced Arcade quarterly, and in an effort to open up a new market on newsstands, made the magazine slightly larger and on better paper than most others. The plan backfired when confused news agents did not know where to put it. Arcade also found itself in direct competition with Marvel's comics book and ended after seven issues. Comics book for Marvel started in 1974 and was Marvel's attempt to cash in on the popularity of underground comics. It ran for only five issues. Some historians say that the underground comics movement never ended, but instead evolved into alternative comics. And by the mid-70s, there was no denying the old counterculture was fading away, helped along by its appropriation by mainstream culture. By the mid-1980s, comics readers wanted something other than superheroes of mainstream comics or the sex and drugs of comics. What evolved was called indie or independent comics, and while it's hard to define as a genre, it's generally more inclusive and diverse than the old comics scene. Two magazines emerged that would carry forward the legacy of underground comics for the next two decades, Raw and Weirdo. They were places for comics artists of the 60s and 70s as well as new artists to publish their work. Raw was the avant-garde magazine that Art Spiegelman and his wife Francois Mouly edited. After Spiegelman's arcade magazine folded, he vowed never to do it again. It was too much work and too much hassle. It was Mouly's idea to start publishing Raw. Spiegelman finally agreed to co-edit. After Mouly spent time experimenting with the printing and binding herself, they decided Raw could be large format and bill itself as a graphics magazine, as a way to get around the preconceived notions about comics. In 1980, the first issue was published. Raw was where Spiegelman's mouse was first serialized. In total, Spiegelman and Mooley published 11 issues of Raw, running from 1980 to 1991. On the other hand, there was R. Crumb's magazine, Weirdo. At the time, Crumb was working as an art and layout editor and was getting fed up. He decided it was time to start his own magazine. Last Gasp agreed to publish it as long as Crumb did all of the covers himself. The first issue of Weirdo came out in 1981. Crumb edited it for a couple of years before handing that responsibility over to Peter Baggy, who moved from New York to Seattle to take over the editing. After nine more issues, Baggy was overwhelmed as Crumb had been, handing editing responsibilities over to Crumb's wife, Aileen Kominsky Crumb. Weirdo published 28 issues running from 1981 to 1993. In some ways, Weirdo was the opposite of Raw where Raw explored the possibilities of magazine layout and comics as a storytelling medium, Weirdo played in the same sandbox as the comics of the previous decade. Crumb's contributions to the final issue got it banned in Canada. If nothing else, underground comics showed that comic books could be more than just superhero stories aimed at young readers. When it came to subject matter, they pushed every boundary they could, brazenly crossing lines of good taste and political correctness. However, in doing so, they questioned those notions of good taste and made possible discussions of difficult topics, not just on their own pages, but in alternative indie and even mainstream comics that would come much later. 
Modern comics owe a debt to the trailblazing, rule-breaking illustrations of comics and stories. Without the comics of the 1960s and 70s, we wouldn't have artists like Daniel Klaus and his graphic novel Ghost World. We wouldn't have Charles Burns or Black Hole. We wouldn't have Phoebe Glockner or Diary of a Teenage Girl. And we wouldn't have Gilbert and Jamie Hernandez or Love and Rockets. We don't have to like what comics said or did, but based on the artists and books that they inspired, we can be glad that they did it. This episode was produced with the aid of a grant from the University of Central Oklahoma. Research and writing credits for this episode are from Dean Kelly, with additional research assistance provided by Taylor Hill and Colby Streller. Story editing provided by Spencer Gee. Sound design and engineering by the University of Central Oklahoma Center for E-Learning and Connected Environments. Music by Christina Giacona and Patrick Conlon of Onyx Lane. If you would like to contact me about this episode or about the podcast, please email me at hello at idh.fm. That is H-E-L-L-O at idh.fm. Our website can be found at idh.fm. You can also connect with us on Instagram at Incomplete Design History and subscribe to Incomplete Design History wherever you listen to podcasts.